Chapter One of Colonel Quaritch, V.C. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Colonel Quaritch, V.C. by H. Ryder Haggard. Chapter One. Harold Quaritch meditates. There are some things and faces which, when felt or seen for the first time, project themselves upon the mind like a sun-image on a sensitive plate, and there remain unalterably fixed. To take the case of a face, we may never see it again, or it may become the companion of our life. But there the picture is, just as we first knew it. The same smile, the same look, unaltering and unalterable, reminding us in the midst of changed of the absolutely indestructible nature of every experience, act, and aspect of our life. For that which has been is, since the past, knows no change and no corruption, but lives eternally in its frozen and completed self. These are somewhat large words to be born of a small matter, but they rose up spontaneously in the mind of a soldierly-looking man on the particular evening when this history opens, over a gate in an eastern country lane, staring vacantly at a ripe field of corn. He was a peculiar and rather battered-looking individual, apparently over forty years of age, and yet bearing upon him that unmistakable stamp of dignity and self-respect, which, if it does not exclusively belong to, is yet one of the distinguishing attributes of the English gentleman. In face he was ugly, no other words can express it. Here were not the long mustachios, the almond eyes, the aristocratic air of the colonel of fiction, for our dreamer was a colonel. These were, alas, that the truth should be so plain, represented by rather scrubby, sandy-coloured whiskers, small but rather kindly blue eyes, a low, broad forehead, with a deep line running across it from side to side, something like that to be seen upon the bust of Julius Caesar, and a long, thin nose. One good feature, however, he did possess, a mouth of such sweetness and beauty, that, set as it was, above a very square and manly-looking chin, it had the air of being ludicrously out of place. Ugh, said his old aunt, Mrs. Massey, who had just died and left him what she had, on the occasion of her first introduction to him, five and thirty years before. Oomph! Nature meant to make a pretty girl of you, and changed her mind, after she had finished the mouth. Well, never mind. Better be a plain man than a pretty woman. There, go along, boy. I like your ugly face." Nor was the old lady peculiar in this respect, for, plain as the countenance of Colonel Harold Quaritch undoubtedly was, people found something very taking about it when once they got used to its rugged air and stern, regulated expression. What that something was it would be hard to define, but perhaps the nearest approach to the truth would be to describe it as a light of purity which, notwithstanding the popular idea to the contrary, is to be found quite as often upon the faces of men as upon those of women. Any person of discernment in looking at Colonel Quaritch must have felt that he was in the presence of a good man, not a prude or a milksop, but a man who had attained to virtue by thought and struggle, that had left their mark upon his face, a man whom it would not be well to tamper with, and one to be respected by all, and feared of evildoers. Men felt this, and he was popular among those who knew him in his service, though not in any hail-fellow well-met kind of way, but 
Among women he was not popular. As a rule, they both feared and disliked him. His presence jarred upon the frivolity of the lighter members of their sex, who dimly realized that his nature was antagonistic, and the more solid ones could not understand him. Perhaps this was the reason why Colonel Quaritch had never married, had never even had a love affair since he was five and twenty. And yet it was of a woman's face that he was thinking as he leant over the gate, and looked at the field of yellowing corn, undulating like a golden sea beneath the pressure of the wind. Colonel Quaritch had twice in his life been at Honham, before the present time, when he had come to abide there for good and all. Once ten and once five years ago, his old aunt, Mrs. Massey, had a place in the village, a very small place called Honham Cottage, or Mole Hill, and he had on those two occasions been down to stay with her. Now Mrs. Massey was dead and buried, and had left him the property, and he had given up his profession, in which he had no further prospects, and come to live at Honham. This was his first evening in the place, for he had arrived by the last train on the previous night. All day he had been busy trying to get the house a little straight, and now, thoroughly tired of the task, he was refreshing himself by leaning over the gate. It is, though a great many people will not believe it, one of the most delightful refreshments in the world. And then it was, as he leant over the gate, that the image of a woman's face rose before his mind, as it had been continuously rising for the last five years. It was five years since he had seen it, and those five years he had spent in India, and Egypt, that is, with the exception of his six months which he had passed in hospital, as a result of an Arab spear-thrust in his thigh. It had risen before him in all sorts of places and at all sorts of times, in his sleep, in his waking moments, at mass, out shooting, and even once in the hot rush of battle. He remembered it well. It was at El Teb. It happened that stern necessity forced him to shoot a man with his pistol. The bullet cut into the spine of his enemy, and with a few convulsions he died. He watched him die. He could not help doing so. There was some fascination in following the act of his own hand to its dreadful conclusion. And indeed conclusion and commencement were very near together. The terror of the sight, the terror of what, in defense of his own life, he had been forced to do, revolted him even in the heat of the fight. And then, even then, over that ghastly, agony-distorted face, another face had spread itself like a mask, blotting it out from view, that woman's face and now again it re-arose, inspiring him with the rather recondite reflections as to the immutability of things and impressions with which this domestic record opens. Five years is a good stretch in a man's journey through the world. Many things happen to us in that time. If a thoughtful man were to set to work to record all the impressions that impinge upon his mind during that period, he would fill a library with volumes— the mere tale of its events would furnish a shelf. And yet, how small they are to look back upon! It seemed but the other day that he had been leaning over this very gate, and had turned to see a young girl, dressed in black, with a spray of honeysuckle stuck in her girdle, and a stick in her hand, walking leisurely down the lane. There was something about the girl's air that had struck him, while she was yet a long way off. A dignity and a grace— and a set of the shoulders. And then, as she came near, he saw the soft dark eyes and the waving brown hair 
that contrasted so strangely and effectively with the pale and striking face. It was not a beautiful face, for the mouth was too large, and the nose was not as straight as it might have been, but there was a power about the broad brow, and a force and solid nobility stamped upon the features which had impressed him strangely. Just as she arrived opposite to where he was standing, a gust of wind, for there was a stiff breeze, had blown the lady's hat off, taking it right over the hedge, and he, as in duty bound, had scrambled into the field and fetched it for her, and she had thanked him with a quick smile and a lighting up of the brown eyes, and then passed on with a bow. Yes, with a little bow she had passed on, and he had watched her departing down the long level drift, till she melted into the stormy sunset light and was gone. When he returned to the cottage, he had described her to his old aunt, and asked who she might be, to learn that her name was Ida de la Mole, which sounded like a name out of a novel, the only daughter of the old squire who lived at Honham Castle. And then the next day he had departed to India, and saw Miss de la Mole no more. And now he wondered what had become of her. Probably she was married, so striking a person would almost be sure to attract the notice of men. And after all, what could it matter to him? He was not a marrying man, and women as a class had little attraction for him. Indeed, he disliked them. It has been said that he had never married, and never even had a love affair since he was five and twenty, and this was true enough. But, though he was not married, he once, before he was five and twenty, had nearly taken that step. It was twenty years ago now, and nobody quite knew the history, for in twenty years many things are fortunately forgotten. But there was a history, and a scandal, and the marriage was broken off almost on the very day before it was to have taken place. And after that it leaked out in the neighbourhood, it was in Essex near Romford, that the young lady, who, by the way, was a large heiress, had gone off her head, presumably with grief, and had been confined in an asylum, where she was presumed still to remain. Perhaps it was the thinking of this one woman's face, the woman he had once seen walking down the drift, her figure lined out against the stormy sky, that led him to think of the other face, the face hidden in the madhouse. At any rate, with a sigh, or rather a groan, he swung himself round from the gate, and began walking homeward at a brisk pace. The drift that he was following was known as the Mile Drift, and had in ancient times formed the approach to the gates of Honham Castle, the seat of the ancient and honourable family of de la Mole, sometimes written as de la Mole, in history and ancient writings. Honham Castle was now nothing but a ruin, with a manor-house built out of the wreck on one side of the square, and the broad way that led to it from the high road which ran from Boisingham, the local country town, was a drift or a grass lane. Colonel Quaritch followed this drift till he came to the high road, and then turned to the left. A few minutes' walk brought him to a drive, opening out of the main road on the left as he faced toward Boisingham. This drive, which was some three hundred yards long, led up a rather sharp slope to his own place, Honham Cottage, or Molehill, as the villagers called it, a title calculated to give a keen impression of a neat spick-and-span red-brick villa with a slate roof. As a matter of fact, however, it was nothing of the sort, being a building of the fifteenth century, 
as a glance at its massive flint walls was sufficient to show. In ancient times there had been a large abbey at Boisingham, two miles away, which, as the records show, in the fifteenth century, suffered terribly from an outbreak of the plague. At this the monks obtained by grant from the de la Mole of the day ten acres of land, known as the Mole Hill, and so named, either on account of its resemblance to a mole hill, of which more presently, or after the family. On this elevated spot, which was supposed to be peculiarly healthy, they built the little house now known as Honham Cottage, where too to fly when next the plague should visit them. And as they built it, so, with some slight additions, it had remained to this day, for in those ages men did not skimp their flint and oak and mortar. It was a beautiful little spot, upon the flat top of a swelling hill, which comprised the ten acres of grazing ground originally granted, and was, wonderful to say, to this day, the most magnificently timbered piece of ground in the countryside. For on the ten acres of grassland there were over fifty great oaks, some of them pollards of the most enormous antiquity, and others, which had originally, no doubt, grown very close together, fine, upstanding trees, with a wonderful length and girth of bole. This place, old Mrs. Massey, Colonel Quaritch's aunt, had bought nearly thirty years before, when she became a widow, and now it had, together with a modest income of two hundred a year, passed to him under her will. Shaking himself clear of his sad thoughts, Harold Quaritch turned round at his own front door to contemplate the scene. The long, single-storied house stood, as it had been said, at the top of the rising land, and to the south and west and east commanded as beautiful a view as is to be seen in that country. There, a mile or so away to the south, situated in the midst of grassy grazing grounds, flanked on either side by still perfect towers, frowned the massive gateway of the old Norseman castle. Then to the west, almost at the foot of the molehill, the ground broke away in a deep bank, clothed with timber, which led the eye down by slow descents into the beautiful valley of the L. Here the silver river wound its gentle way through lush and poplar-bordered marshes, where the cattle stand knee-deep in flowers, past quaint, old, wooden mill-houses, through Boisingham Old Common, windy-looking even now, and brightened here and there with a dash of golden gorse, till it was lost in the picturesque cluster of red-tiled roofs that marked the ancient town. Look which way he would, the view was lovely, and equal to any to be found in the eastern countries, where the scenery is fine enough in its own way, whatever people whose imaginations are so weak that they require a mountain and a torrent to excite them into activity, may choose to say the contrary. Behind the house to the north there was no view, and for a good reason, for here, in the very middle of the back garden, rose a mound of large size and curious shape, which completely shut the landscape out. What this mound, which may perhaps have covered half an acre of ground, was, nobody had any idea. Some learned folk said that it was a Saxon tumulus, a presumption to which its ancient name, Dead Man's Mount, seemed to give colour. Other folk, however, yet more learned, declared that it was an ancient British dwelling, and pointed triumphantly to a hollow at the top, where the ancient Britishers were supposed to have moved, lived, and had their being, which must, 
urged the other party, have been a very damp one. Thereon the late Mrs. Massey, who was a British dwellingite, proceeded to show with much triumph how they had lived in that hole, by building a huge mushroom-shaped roof over it, and thereby turning it into a summer-house, which, owing to unexpected difficulties in the construction of the roof, cost a great deal of money. But as the roof was slated, and it was found necessary to pave the hole with tiles, and cut surface drains in it, the result did not clearly prove its use as a dwelling-place before the Roman conquest, nor did it make a very good summer-house. Indeed, it now served as a store-place for the gardeners, and for rubbish generally. End of chapter 1